Um, uh, warm welcome to uh, to everybody. Um, it's a bit of a rare venture for the department to have seminars in the middle of the day, and in large part because uh, they don't uh, nearly seem to be as successful in attracting the kind of numbers that our evening uh, seminars attract. Um, I was earlier on sharing with people how long I've known Professor Charles Amjad Ali. Um, some things uh, betray more than you want to uh, in your statements. But I have known of Professor Charles Amjad Ali uh, since I was a teenager. I was familiar with his work and his writings and so on when I was a student in Pakistan in a madrasa or in an Islamic uh, seminary. Um, he's one of the leading uh, liberation theologians, uh, arguably in the world, um, over our little uh, breaking of bread that we had earlier on. Uh, I learned that he had uh, 90, that he had 81, uh, 83 PhD students had, 83 PhD uh, candidates had completed their PhDs uh, under him already. So that's quite a lot, you know, to actually have uh, under your belt, a huge amount, I think, to have uh, under your belt. Um, he is at the, um, uh, at the moment, he's at uh, the Luther Seminary. At the Luther Seminary in Minneapolis. St. Paul. Uh, St. Paul. Um, <laughs> the other side of the river. <laughs> the, okay, fine. Uh, these people are very sensitive about these things. It's like, um, you know, you say you're from... Uh, Pretoria when you're from, from Joburg. No, not from Pretoria and Joburg. It's more like uh, uh, you're from Rondebosch and Rondebosch East uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Cape Town. Rondebosch East is the colored area. And Rondebosch is a proper white area. So when I tell classes, yeah. So when I tell when I tell my family, for example, that uh, I'm from Rondebosch, I'm in Rondebosch, then they say, um, "Oh, you live in Rondebosch East." Now, because they like Muslims, you know, I like have to say yes, but I'm actually very upset that they think I'm from Rondebosch East, the colored area, when I'm really living in a posh white area. Um, anyway, so he is from St. Paul. Uh, he's at the Luther College in St. Paul, not in Minneapolis, and has written uh, many, many books uh, uh, on different parts of uh, liberation theology and uh, philosophy. Um, he is actually in South Africa as the occupant of the Desmond Tutu chair uh, at the University of the Western Cape. Um, and we managed to snatch him to be with us uh, at UJ for this week. Uh, he delivered a wonderful lecture last night to our honest class. But that was, by the way, packed with about 30 people. Uh, and um, and he's speaking to us uh, today. Um, Charles is speaking on a bit more of a political uh, dimension to his own work, betrayed by the KISS, Conservative Christians and the United States Empire, a theological and political paradox. Friends and colleagues, join me in welcoming Professor Charles Amjad Ali. Now, I'll tell you why the distinction between St. Paul and Minneapolis. St. Paul is a highly integrated city. The Jews were not allowed to live in Minneapolis till 1981. 
till 1981. The lawyers were not allowed, Jewish lawyers were not allowed to be lawyers till 1984. And the Jews could not go to the major hospitals because of the dietary restriction and because the hospitals are not going to make an accommodation till 1986. So you, 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 I, you begin to understand why the adamants demand that I make on, on this thing that whereas in, in St. Paul they had more synagogues than anywhere in the Middle West outside of Chicago. So that was the Spanish. So I I come from a, a, a Lutheran seminary actually and I, I heard, you're a Lutheran or are you a pastor? Okay. Uh, at this large seminary, we have about 800 students, all graduates who are doing masters and MTHs and PhDs. And we have almost 30% PhD students who work with us. So it's, it's, a, it's a substantial mainline institution. And it's in the context of the current demands and the current eruptions in the U.S. of the very conservative Christian approaches to the issues of social dimensions in politics, in culture, in on sexualities and on women's issues and all series of issues that the dominant grammar that is beginning to take shape is by people who till about 25, 30 years ago felt that participation in the public realm was to violate the sanctity of Christian existence. So that we are not concerned about the things of this world, but about things of God. And so the, this group is now the one that is trying to control the discourse. And especially true because we now have a black president, which nobody ever anticipated or expected. And it happened, and not only did it happen, but it happened second time. You know, so that actually changed. Not that I always think that he's doing right things, but that's a bit different issue. <laughs> But the fact is that the color line which has made and formed the U.S. policies is now undergone a major question mark upon it, if not a grammatical shift. So that, that's the context of where these evangelical groups are sitting. When I talk about it, I don't know if you've been following the debate that took place after the Accra Confession. since. Most of you have some connection with the Reformed churches. You know, there was, a, there was a, a major gathering. The first time a confession was drafted in the Third World was Accra Confession. I hope you know this. All the confessions were drafted in Europe and even a couple in America. But none of them had been drafted in the Third World. So the foundation of Christianity lies this side of the Mediterranean, but the confessions lie all on that side of the Mediterranean. You know. So you have a problem of what they call geographical dissonance that keeps. And Accra was one of the first ones that came out. And out of that Accra Confession, the debate came about with the Europeans were very upset with because the Accra Confession states that the U.S. is an empire. And they say, no, U.S. is not an empire. And there was a big debate. I mean, the German churches banned the funding of the Accra Confession project. And partly Norwegians and partly the Danes also wanted to withdraw because these are the major donors because they have the state-funded churches. You know, I mean, I, you, I hope you understand how the money comes. It comes not with Swaibereichen of Luther, but from a common source of the state and the Kirchensteuer, the church tax, which is not true for the 
other denominations. I hope you understand. That's why we get a lot of money from the Lutheran-based nations. Okay, that's... People tell me, and I quote here, empires have emerged and fallen throughout human history. True. Nobody can deny it. A fact. But this is a fact which is quickly emphasized when anyone critiques the contemporary Western empires. This convenient broadening of the issue does not in any way remove the culpability of Western imperium, especially since the fact remains that almost all the recent imperial structures originate from within a Euro-American context. I'm going to quote you two Dutch geographers who are eminent scholars on geography and politics. The one is, you know, if I pronounce it right, his name is Bly, B-L-I-J, if you know that name, and the other is Müller. And I'm going to quote a slightly longer version because they begin their understanding of the new geography with this quote. It is appropriate to begin our investigation of the world's geographic realms in Europe. Why you have to begin in Europe, I still don't understand, but that's how they want to begin. Because that's how you begin all your geography. Therefore, we have Middle East, I was saying yesterday, middle of where and east of where. I mean, it's not Middle East for me, or it's not Middle East from Indonesia. So the geography determined from Europe as the North Pole, from which you then judge everything, you know. I mean, for me, it's Northwest. <laughs> I come from in Pakistan. Should I say I'm going to Northwest and the Middle East? So we have accepted that Middle East term because geography must begin from Europe. European empires spanned the globe. Millions of Europeans migrated from their homelands of the old world uh, to the old world as well as to the new. They migrated internally and they migrated externally. Changing and sometimes nearly obliterating traditional communities, creating new societies from Australia to North America. I mean, remember, there are now very few Native Americans left. They're gone. They're, they're wiped out. This country has survived in spite of that. So that, that this is, I'm quoting this Western people. I'm going to quote only Western people here so that nobody thinks that I'm doing it out of a purely Southern bias and prejudice. So this is the reason why I'm doing this. Okay? <laughs> Not that I'm Eurocentric, but I want to quote the people here. Colonial powers and economic incentive combined to impel the movement of millions of imperial subjects from the ancestral homes to distant land. European migration has been the largest migration ever experienced in the history. By, by the way, all this question of immigration that is now being raised in Europe and America is being raised by people who were the biggest migrants. There are more Irish, five times more Irish live outside of Ireland, both the islands put together. I hope you understand these, these little just numbers. Just in America, there are more Irish descendants than both the islands put together twice. So that migration question has to be put in this larger historical movement rather than exclusively in the 20th or 21st century question. But throughout much of that 500-year period of European hegemony, Europe also was a cauldron of conflict, religious, territorial, and political disputes, precipitated bitter wars that even spilled over into the colonies. I, my father, fought in the Second World War. He didn't fight as an Indian. He fought 
for the British. I mean, this was not our war. <laughs> Why was my father a major fighting for, for a colonial empire? He should have said, let the Japanese take you over. Who the hell cares, right? But he didn't. He actually believed it. They went and fought these wars. And people forget that Rommel was not fighting English soldiers. He was fighting Indian soldiers. Rommel had all white soldiers. The British had, outside of Montgomery, most of the soldiers were Indian. So the, that the, the war spilled out of the context of where the war started and became a global war because the colonial people participated in those wars. Europe, the religious, territorial and political disputes precipitated bitter wars that even spilled over into the colonies and during the 20th century, Europe twice plunged the world into a war. Europe. Now, I say something a little bit more right now here. The two centers of those wars were the two centers of enlightenment, Britain and Germany. One of technical and scientific enlightenment in people like gravity or capitalism or, you know, the steam engine and the steam mills, all that part of the British Industrial Revolution and Scientific Revolution. And the other side was Germany, which was the enlightenment coming out of people like Kant and Hegel and primarily those two sources. So the enlightenment was the place where these two tribal wars began. Everybody blames religion for wars. Nobody blames enlightenment for wars. Very interesting that. Everybody says, ah, religion is the cause of war, especially after September 11. Everybody now goes back to the Crusades and says religion is the cause of war, but they won't blame secularity and enlightenment. And all the wars we have fought in the 20th century and fighting right now in the 21st century are at the cause of secularity. We have fought Cold War, not in the sake of religion. There was no religion to fight. But they were not, they're not called... So we have no secular wars, we have religious wars. And I'm just going to push that as a question. Keep it in your mind when I come to the talk. On the, the authors are clearly trying to be fair and balanced. Those of you who lived in, in America, I live there. There is a television called Fox News. And if you have never seen Fox News, they always claim they are fair and balanced. And they are the most biased piece of music that you can hear. But they, So I'm saying these people are trying to be fair and balanced and lay out the global history in the last five centuries, 1492 on. That's beginning of what we call the new imperial modeling. The contemporary Euro-American history and imperial model starts with Christopher Columbus in 1492, followed by Vasco da Gama in 1498. He left in 1497 and arrived in 1498, and I blame the Arabs because the Arab navigator told Vasco da Gama how to get to India. <laughs> you know, this is, he said, oh, you idiot, you are going against the wind. Out of that experience, we developed what is called the trade winds. I hope you know that word. The trade winds were that in the summer, the wind blows one way, in the winter, it blows the other way, and you can make a European trip in less than a month if you follow the trade winds. If you're not following the trade winds, you're flying against it. These are mast ships and it takes you six and a half months. So the Arab navigator told them there are trade winds. What are you doing? Why are you going against the wind? Wait for two months, sit here. So they sat for two months and then they followed a trade wind and they were taken to very close to the place where Ashraf comes from. No, no. 
Forty Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they landed up there, and then you know, a big fight takes place, and Vasco da Gama actually bombs Calicut Port. Actually bombed because Vasco da Gama wanted the Muslims who were living in Calicut Port to be kicked out. And the Samudri Raj, the ruler of the area, refused. I mean, I hope you know this. Is, this is a very critical history, which we are not taught when we do this work. Because 1492, now Muslims must be kicked out. Because otherwise the Muslims will take over India. And the Muslims had been ruling India already by that period for 600 years. So, so it's, it, it was not a new experience for India to have Muslim rulers. Thus, the Western Imperium began with the Iberian Catholic colonization. This is an Iberian pan, uh, and what we now call mission of the church is following that pattern. I hope you know the Christian mission begins in 1540 with the Jesuits because of this Iberian. They come to Goa. The first missionary movement comes to Goa. This is not the Nestorian mission, which I think is a much bigger mission, but the Western mission comes after Vasco da Gama and lands up in Goa. That's where the Goan Portuguese connection comes in. And Goa was the main diocese from which then they went to China. Nina, uh, sorry, Ritchie and uh, what's his name? The other guy who went to Japan. And that's where the conversion story goes. I hope this, because the Pope had divided the world into Spanish and Portuguese reality. East of Cape Verde was Portuguese, west of Cape Verde was Spanish. Of course, they did not have a true understanding of geography, so Brazil became Portuguese. Because if you look at how the, the Southern Europe, the Southern American continent comes, it bends a little like this. So they thought that should become. So the only Portuguese colony on the west of Cape Verde was Brazil. This is all tied to also our understanding of mission. And the Pope had divided in the Treaty of Tortillas in 1497 a year before Vasco de Gama already. So this is something, remember, this church mission understanding. This moved in 1588 because the last 400 or so years have been dominant, dominated now by the emergence of Northwestern European empires, mostly from Protestant countries. So all of a sudden from Catholic to Protestant, from Iberia to Western Europe. Though the U.S. is seen as a paragon of modern democracy, especially since the Declaration of Independence from Britain in 1776, it must be remembered that the U.S. itself has a much longer imperial history than is generally acknowledged or dated. It has been clearly an empire at least since the colonization of Philippines. I hope you know the classical thing, I shall return, is done in the context of Philippines. It's not Arnold Schwarzenegger's statement. It, it is General's statement about coming back to Philippines. So Philippines in 1890s becomes the first colonies that America actually occupies. The imperial status is now being openly recognized and even proudly claimed by Americans in different levels of leadership in the U.S. government. Europeans' resistance to this understanding of the U.S. empire are notwithstanding. Even the Americans are not openly acknowledging that they are an empire. They've given up the pretense that they were never an empire. Even George Bush, of all the people, openly admitted to this. We are an empire. People must listen to us. <laughs> so, uh, 
This history is well in continuity with the classical imperial pattern through which Europe and by extension European immigrant states claimed the right to all civilizational sources and foundation. There obviously had been unique manifestation of this project, but in terms of some fundamental and generic structures, the core values of imperial patterns have remained the same, even though we don't have now landed colonialism. You get it? I mean, people are not residing and taking control of lands, but the pattern of colonialism has remained. And this is why I think what Fanon wrote, that we may not have direct colonialism, but the colonization of the mind is still going on. You know, this, this statement. Every empire is fundamentally manifest of, a manifestation of power, however it may define its action and whatever spin or euphemism it gives to provide its noble raison d'etre. That what we are doing is noble. We are not really trying to rip off the people and the country. We are doing it for noble cause. We are bringing civilization. We are bringing, you know, good to the countries to which we go. The classical example of this unashamed self-aggrandizing paternalistic spin is by Rudyard Kipling. Those of you who know this name, Rudyard Kipling is the colonial poet. Uh, those of us who come from India know because he was in India for a long time, right? This, Rudyard Kipling wrote Kim, and, but the poem that he wrote is The White Man's Burden. I don't know if you've heard it. It's called The White Man's Burden. We know only the first part of it. The, the full title of that poem is The White Man's Burden, United States and Philippine Islands in 1899. That's the full title of it. He actually is writing it for the Americans to become colonial empire. He actually is evoking in them, and I'm going to quote part of it. He himself was a British colonialist. He should have been against America because of American independence from Britain, but he actually is evoking the Americans to become colonial empire. He says, take up the white man's burden. Send forth the best ye breed, the one you produce. Go bind your sons to exile to serve your captives' need. <clears throat> to serve your captives' need. I mean, you know, the one who were captivated, they came to serve their needs. I mean, I just, I, I'm quoting him directly. You know, there are seven verses to this. I'm just quoting you one of them. And if you read, each verse gets progressively worse. But this one. To serve your captive need, to wait, to wait in heavy harness, to go to colony, you're wearing a harness for the sake of the colonized on fluttered folks and wild. Your new-caught sullen people, half devil, half child. This is written in 1899. And this is asking America to become like Europe. This is the context I wanted to read that. Because of the power of the West has exercised globally over the last 500 years, they generated manufactured myth, history, myth, uh, mythical History are thrust on all other inhabitants of the world. There's even tribal wars inside the West become world wars. I mean, it, why are they called world war? You know, nobody else's war is called world war. I hope you know that, right? <laughs> why are they called world war? I mean, you know, it was a Serbian prince who did the war, right? I hope you all know all your history of first world. It's still going on right now, by the way, in Serbia. It got nothing to do with the world. It was something to do with the... Eight person in line to the Holy Roman Emperor. 
eighth person in line and he was shot and so therefore we have a war. Well, it's a tribal war, call it, but when we have wars in the south, they are called tribal wars, but when the west has wars, they are called world wars. It affects the world, quote unquote, because of the colonial structure. And I'm saying we must question these things. Any challenge to the veracity of these myths is immediately condemned as symptomatic of all that is wrong with the victims, the weak, and the underdeveloped. That means I am now a person who does not know the history. They obviously ontologically lack the ability to be objective. To be colonized is objective. To critique colonialism is not objective. I mean, that's a historical fact, right? Michel Foucault has a significant insight into this, and I'm going to quote again another Western person. I just want to do this. You know Michel Foucault's work, those of you who have. No, Michel Foucault, uh, as he deals with the issue of power and knowledge in very significant ways. He makes this statement in Archaeology of Knowledge, which is the concern of any university. I hope you know that we do digging of knowledge as a requirement. Whether you do it in Old Testament or New Testament, we are digging knowledge out of that place. We are mining it for value, we are mining it for virtue, we are mining it for faith, we are mining it for you know, providing values in society. <coughs> and that's what he's talking about. And his quote. He says at the end of his life, he's actually condemned, he, he pushes this in the book, that you have people who are interrogating and the people who are being interrogated. You know, there are people, so in, in France, I don't know if you know, in France there is actually a very Catholic tradition of circle of epistemology. So whatever you produce, the circle of epistemology must give it imprimatur on it. Like the Catholic Church must give an imprimatur in anything that is to be used at the university. I hope you know that. They write on Neil Opstart by the Bishop so that you can teach this. Otherwise, you can't teach in the Catholic Church. But in France, this is true of all knowledge game. It goes to the circle of epistemology, and they then approve it. And so Michel Foucault actually puts himself as being questioned by the circle of epistemology. So the interrogator says to Michel Foucault, but if you claim you are opening up a radical interrogation, if you wish to place your discourse at the level which we place ourselves, you know very well that it will enter our game. If you want to place a critique, it will become part of our game. Either we accept it or we reject it. If we accept it, it expands our knowledge game on our grammar. If we reject it, your knowledge is worthless. This is, this is the argument that Michel Foucault, that it becomes worthless because we have critiqued it. This is what Rana, sorry Rana, uh, Kung went through when he wrote this book. That his knowledge was not useful, so Kung was taken out of the Catholic Church. And Michel Foucault is putting himself and he says, either it get accepted and become part of our game, and in turn extend the dimension that you are trying to undermine. It actually expands it. So your critique is going to be taken and being made out and it's going to expand it. Either it does not reach us or we claim it. Either we don't listen to it, you can keep talking and we will not listen to it. Hearing they will not hear, seeing they will not see, because the ears and eyes are filled with the fat of the land. <laughs> you have to use the Old Testament metaphor. It cannot hear these things because this does not fall within their perspective. In any case, you have promised to tell us these discourses are, and you have been pushing so obstinately 
without ever bothering to divine this status. And this is how he responds. This is at the end of his book, as an appendix, he puts it. I admit this question embarrasses me. I am not entirely surprised by this question. I know this. But I would prefer to leave it in suspense a little longer. This is because for the moment, and as far as I can see, my discourse, far from diminishing the locus in which it speaks, is avoiding the ground which you have determined. I have to avoid that for knowledge to grow. The ground that you have determined is impeding knowledge from happening. Think of what I'm just saying. It cannot expand. So that, that's his argument. When colonizing forces first came to America, they carried a theological, now I come to the, the actual part of the evangelical side, a doctrinal certitude of God's foreordained support in 14... Nobody knows that. That's <laughs> why, so, uh, because God had been on the side of the Reconquista, Muslims were finally defeated after 800 years of occupation of Spain. Not a small period. America is only 335 years old, 235 years old. Think of it, for 800 years from 711 to 1492, the Muslims ruled Spain. Now, is Europe purely a Christian content? I, I leave the question to you. You have to answer this question. If Europe has, at it, that time, its core, Spain and Portugal, Islamic rule for 800 years, is Europe exclusively Christian continent? And I was asking this question last night also. And from 1422 or 1453, with the fall of Constantinople, for 500 years now, eastern part of Europe was under Islam. So what we mean by Europe, we exclude the, the western part of Europe and the eastern part of Europe, and we take the middle part of Europe as exclusively Europe. So we are not talking about the continental structure. We are talking about ideological Europe here. I, I hope you understand this. Because Muslims had ruled for a long period of time, major parts of Europe. So Europe is not as Christian as we claimed it to be. And we claim, these are mythologies, right? So because God had relieved Spain from the Muslim rule, Isabella and Ferdinand began to support trade routes to make their way to India. And I always ask my historical students, and you can ask, what was Isabella and Ferdinand going to trade with India? They were going for trade, I hope you know that, that Christopher Columbus was taking trade. Did Spain have anything to trade? I, I ask you a question, this is, tell me, what would they have taken for trade? They had nothing to trade. You know, every ship had a Franciscan monk with him. Christianity was a tradable commodity. Pinkas, Ninias, and Anna Marie all had Dominican priests, sorry, Franciscan priests. So they thought they could take Christianity and get trade with India. You, you know, Christopher Columbus thought that he was in India all the way up to 1515. Thank God they never came to India, otherwise you would have been wiped out too, right? <laughs> <laughs> I say that to my native brothers and sisters, I always begin first with an apology, then with a gratitude. I said, I'm apology, they mistook you to be Indians. And I'm grateful to you because you have died for our sake. 
They call Indians, right? I hope you know they call Indians. And why they call Indians? Because Christopher Columbus thought he had reached India. These guys have no geography. I hope you understand that. They still call Indians. They were Navajos. They were Sioux Indians. They were, but they all call Indians because Christopher Columbus, right up to his death, his son writes about it, thinks he's in India. That's what he was trading, right? I mean, you know, they had discovered that the world was round. Before that, they did not know the world was round. So they said, how do you bypass Islam? Islam had put this corridor around Europe. Europe could not trade with India and China. Those were the two places to trade at, from which you could get silk, you could get all the things that you needed. So they said, if we go west, we can come around and get to India and China. But they didn't realize there was a continent in the middle. So when he comes to that continent, he's like, ah, this must be India. <laughs> so, so that people are still called Indian. I, I, I'm not kidding you. This is actually how the thing happened there. So, so they, they thought if God has given them freedom from the Muslims, they can now bypass the Muslim, uh, what they call literally closure, and now begin to trade with India and China, but they had nothing to trade. So Christianity became a tradable commodity. I, 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 I'm not being facetious here at all. I mean, there is nothing else there was, and I looked at all the documents of what they were going to trade. There's nothing in the, the three ships he takes with him, which is commodity for trading. There's only food listing. We have got all this detail. Actually, by the way, those of you who are interested, Christopher Columbus kept an incredible log, so did Vasco da Gama. And these logs are of all the people who were with him, all the things that they were carrying. And these are now available to us on the 500th anniversary by the Jesuits. Somebody here was with Jesuit. I was talking, you were, right? Yeah. So Jesuit has done that. The other critical migration to the Americas, which is hyperbolized as paradigmatic, and especially for the conservative Christian, is that of the Puritans. Now, most of you may know or may not know the history of Puritans. Puritans came about as a Calvinist reform in England. And it was a great reform, but the Anglicans won't like to admit it, but most of the Anglican fathers who wrote the Book of Common Prayer had gone to Geneva. They were directly under the instruction of the Calvinists. I hope you know this. This is a part that we don't want to always admit. You know, both Kramer and Cranmer are both trained in, in Geneva. And so the Puritan is the breakaway group from that to take over more Calvinistic identities as compared to the more Catholic identity that the Anglicans had developed with, with, with that. And the Puritans were actually yeoman farmers. And along with them were the levelers and the diggers. I'm giving you little details that you understand this project. And Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, this is the beginning of what we call contemporary democracy. It's not going back to Athens. It is actually what happened in the parliamentary democracy that emerged in England. And Cromwell says the king is not fulfilling the covenant of justice. Right? I hope you understand. He actually challenges Romans 13. You know, you were talking about Jude part, part that Romans 13 has been interpreted by Luther, and I think terribly, that the state has got its right to rule because God has ordained it. This is the power of the king and the power of state. So he makes a separation of church and state and therefore allows the princes 
to do things that he should not have. Calvin actually is the first one to break from the interpretation of Romans 13. I'm giving you a little details that you understand how politics develop. For the first time, the king was not the representative of God. For the first time. Otherwise, king represented God. And therefore, if I insult the king or the queen, I'm looking at you, who could be the English, I am insulting God. I am in an act of blasphemy if I said anything against the king. Remember that lay majesty took place. This is this is all this argument that there was no blasphemy. There has been a blasphemy part in this. If you insult the king, you will. Calvin comes out and reads Roman 13 in a radically different way than the traditional church after Constantine. And he challenges that Charles I is not a good king. And what do they do? They follow the book four of the Calvin's Institute, which says if the king does not fulfill the covenant of justice, the king must go. And they take Charles I and chop his head off. <laughs> Literally. Gillotine him. And that led to the parliamentary democracy that we all experience. I hope you understand. That's the root of that. Charles II does the restoration. Those of you who have English history connection, but remember you were ruled here for a long time by the English. <laughs> so you should connect this history a little better. Charles II comes into power and what he does, he digs up the grave of Oliver Cromwell. Digs up the grave. All he has is a skeleton. He takes the skeleton, cuts its head off, chops its head off for regicide, for killing the king puts a sword through his skull and puts it on top of the parliament building. If you go to London today, you will see Cromwell's statue in front of the parliament. Go and see, right across from Westminster Abbey is Cromwell's statue. His head is cut off. These people get persecuted, Puritans come to America. A failed project, they see because of the persecution, they come to America and they think that God is on their side. God has brought them there. And so they take over the land. I hope you know that lies behind America's understanding of America. There were other Protestant experiments, but they didn't take it. You remember the, 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 the Calvinists were not the only one. The Quakers had come and they set, established the state of Pennsylvania. I, if you don't know, they were fighting against slavery. They were fighting for the rights of Native Americans, but they were not taken. There were Lutherans around, huge number of Lutherans at this time, both in Pennsylvania and also in Ohio. And the Lutherans had been arguing for similes to Sepikato, not double predestination. And that is the greatest contribution of, by the way, of Luther's theology to me. These dialectics of the, the, the absconditus and revelatatus I was talking about and this notion of simil. That opened the door not to somebody being ordained into evil and somebody being ordained into goodness, which the conservative Calvinist read was, but saying, no, I may be a saint, but I'm also a sinner. To come back to your question last night. At the time I'm claiming to be a saint, I might be a sinner. And to me, the quote that I want to give you, those of you who are Christian, is Mark 8, that just confessing Christ was not sufficient. Remember Mark 8? Who do you people say? Who do people say I am? Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're. Who do you say I am? And you are Christ. And Jesus begins to teach the Son of Man should die, and will be killed. And Peter takes him aside, right? I mean, read Roman eight, this Mark eight. 
And Peter takes him aside and says to Jesus, what's wrong with you? He actually rebukes him, the Greek word there is, scolds him. <laughs> you know, he actually scolds his own teacher. Today, in 21st century, you can't do that. But this guy rebukes, sorry, rebukes his teacher. And the answer, Jesus says, is get thee behind me, Satan, for your concern about the things of this world. Those of you who know your Bible, know that passage. The only person Jesus ever called Satan is the one who is confessed. So confession is not sufficient. I just <laughs> and that is the Puritan trick that came in. The evangelicals have five problems, and I'm going to quickly run through this. One, they equate America with God's will, the preordained nation. They actually use the word from the Old Testament, light unto the world, a nation on the hill. They apply it to America. I hope you know Reagan actually used that language in the 1980 election. Actually used, we are a nation on the hill and a light unto the world. So, and I thought the Jew Jewish community would be very upset because he has taken upon America what is exclusively the right of the Jews in the, in, in the covenant. You remember that Isaiah passage that he is quoting. Se second, that America cannot do any wrong because it is preordained to goodness. Whereas every enemy, whoever the enemy is of the time, can never do anything right because they're preordained to you. The double predestination works itself out in that, that level. So that it, whether it's Soviet Union cannot be any good, whether it is Islam now, whether it's terrorists, and they're terrorists equal to Islam now, you cannot find any good in the enemy, whoever the enemy is. And we cannot do anything wrong because we are a perfected, sanctified, my problem with the word sanctification, <laughs> is that in the sanctified state, I cannot do anything wrong. So that's the second point. I'm, and the pure, and the taken third problem that I have is they claim the Bible as an inerrant word of God. And I say this with my Muslim brothers sitting here. There's a problem with this theology because it comes out of a Catholic base. You know, the reason is because of the Logos to Theo. That if Jesus is the word of God, Jesus cannot be born out of a contaminated reality. So Mary has to be immaculately conceived. We could not take Mary... Christ has to be immaculate. Because, because she bore Christ. Because she is mother of God, she cannot be contaminated. Because God cannot be contaminated. What we have done in the Protestant is reduce Mary out. This is a defeminization of the divine reality. And in its place, we have put the Bible. So the Bible cannot be contaminated by human authorship. You see, for Islam, the Logos to Theo, the word of God is the Quran. For us, it is Jesus. And it's not a comparison between book and book. <laughs> this is where the confusion comes. Because Jesus is the word of God, Jesus cannot come out of a contaminated reality and Mary, Mary cannot be contaminated. For us in the Protestant tradition, the Bible cannot be contaminated because if the Bible is contaminated, then the word is contaminated. So they both become part of the same usios, if I can use the Greek Trinitarian formula of the same essence. So actually we don't believe in Trinity. We believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit and Mary. And we believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the Bible. So we actually violate both Nicaea and Chalcedonian formulas. I mean, if, if I'm wrong, you fight with me on this. 
And I think that to me is a serious problem in their theological position. Not only is the Bible, but I cannot even interpret it. So they use the word, they borrow from Thomas, the Bible interprets itself. Bible is perspicuous. It is not that the human agency interprets it, but the Bible interprets itself. I don't know if you've heard that word, perspicuity of the text. So that, that if you employ human reason to the text, then you're going to corrupt it. So the Bible must interpret itself. And Thomas borrowed it from the Muslims directly. Thomas is encountering Muslims teaching in Paris, Everos and Abyssinia. And he, for the, the, I mean, I hope you all know this. There is no categorically acceptable canonical text. Now, I know we don't want to admit it. When was the canon made? I ask all you theologians here. <laughs> I, I just ask you, I mean, all of you have done theology, please tell me when was the canonization of the text took place? Constantine. <laughs> there you go. And it didn't. It couldn't work yet. Yeah, Athanasius tries it. Finally, in Trent, as a counterpoint to the Reformation, because Luther had made two statements. Luther had said, get rid of the book of Revelation and get rid of the book of James. Right? I mean, he says, till God comes, we will not understand it. When Jesus comes back, then we will understand it. Put it away. He was willing to take out books as a Reformation tradition. Trent puts it, and then he puts Apocrypha into it. We then decided not to have an Apocrypha, but we kept Revelation and James, even though Luther was against it. So the canonical text is a problem for us. We don't have a canonical text, but we counter Islam having a canonical text. With our canon, we have equally good canonical. We don't have a canonical text because it's not about the text for us. But the problem with the evangelical thing is that they have taken the sola scriptura of Luther, and Luther was not fighting for the canonical text. He was fighting against the tradition of the church, traditio ecclesia. That does not have power. So theologically, we have a problem here. Those of you who are from the even, I, I, I as Farid will tell you a little later, further, somewhere along the line. I am not a born Christian, so I don't have a DNA, the DNA value of loyalty to Christianity. I look at it from a critical theological position. You tell me, there are about seven, eight theologians sitting here, tell me where is a canonical text? And yet every one of us take it for granted, don't we? Now, would you accept the, the, the Maccabean texts. <laughs> yeah. I just I mean, just ask you, would you accept the Maccabean text? Oh, of course it's canonical text. And some of my hard Lutheran brothers would say, get the hell out of here. <laughs> Is that true or not? <laughs> I live with them day and night of my being, you know, so I know how the thing comes out. Sola Scriptura is not about a canonization of the text. It is against the power of the hold of the church. It is against detentio. So it's Protestant tradition emphasizing the sola scriptura makes it a canonical debate. And it's not. And the problem with the and then comes out that they read the Bible from the light of this success criteria. That if you are a Christian, you must be successful. I call it the Wall Street theology. You do righteousness not because it is good to do righteousness. You do righteousness because you will be rewarded. It's an investment in God. 
right? You invest 10 righteousness and you'll get 20 crown jewels at the end of the day, you know. If you're a good investor, you'll get maybe 40, but if you're a bad investor, you'll get five more than what you've done. It, it is actually an investment theology. To me, as a Christian, I think what makes Christianity so radically is the vulnerability of God. God become vulnerable for our sake. That's the argument that a Christian makes on the cross. And that's precisely what Nietzsche was hateful about, right? Because the question becomes, can God become vulnerable? You know, that's, that's precisely the debate. We are claiming that he's born in a virgin. A 13 to 16 year old virgin woman who could have been stoned to death. Right? I mean, how many times have you heard a sermon about the vulnerability of Mary? The story goes, and you know all that story of Gen the account of Genesis of Jesus. The angel came to Joseph. Now, whether you take biologically, don't worry about the biology question. Worry about the textual question here. So Joseph gets an angel, but not the neighbor. The neighbor said, have you seen Elizabeth's daughter, Mary? She's looking rather plump. <laughs> you know, I mean... <laughs> And, you know, I think this is why she went to Elizabeth, but that is my read, you know, that she went to Elizabeth because in six months' time, you're no longer just fat with your, you know, with your fat going this way, it comes out this way, right? And so everybody say, oh, no, she's not just getting plump, this is something else going on here. And so she goes to Elizabeth, this is my argument. And those of you who are old enough will remember, that's what you used to do with women who got pregnant. They went to their cousin and their aunts or somewhere else, right? So... So that, that, that story becomes much more poignant. The neighbor could have stoned her to death. We don't preach on that. We don't preach on children being killed. Right? The text says everybody under two was killed. Right? Whether it happened or not, don't worry about the historicity of this. It doesn't really matter. But the text is trying to convey something. The vulnerability not only of Jesus, but those who are attached to Jesus. And now, I mean, you may make cradle or Mayo Clinic of purity and cleanliness. <laughs> I know, but those of you who live near any farm community know where the animals eat and drink, they do other things as well. So this, the Lord of history we are claiming is born, if I'm sorry for the crude language, in the shit and piss of history. In the what? <laughs> in the shit and piss of history. The animal, <clears throat> shit and piss in the same place, sorry for my language, but we must take this this way to undo our mind. Flies, mosquitoes, all those, those of you who know this, were all around what we claim to be. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, everything that was created was created through Him. This Creator became flesh and dwelt amongst us in the manger. <laughs> that who worshipped Him? Other religions and the poor. And that's the part of the dialogue that was taken out of these people. Azoroastral, three of them, and the shepherds, the poor, are the ones who worship. Notice that the, the other religion and poverty is built into this incarnation event. And that we have not paid attention, we have done. If other religion is included, it's syncretism. If the poor are included, you haven't understood God's blessings. Uh, the one thing that's not clear. Yeah. Um, and because you were alluding to an earlier conversation, sorry. where does the other religions in this okay. come into? No, sorry, no, sorry. I'm, I am, because there were a number of you, I didn't want to repeat it. The, you know the, the Magi's, you know the text says, we, we translated it in various languages, but the Greek there, it says, 
three magis came. Magios, the word there in Greek. They are the Zoroastrian priest, the priest of Parsi faith. Do we have Parsis in this country? Very, no, we don't have Parsis around here, but uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, the first speaker of our democratic parliament, Jinwa, yeah. she is a Parsi. Yes, and she was a Parsi. Yes. She's still around, isn't she? She's still around. Yeah, I met her actually, and she's a Parsi. Came from Frini Jinwa. <laughs> so there is actually Zoroastrian faith still there, but that is part of that. And that lets them go out of his life. This man was walking around in the streets of, of, of Israel uh, in, 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 in sandals and he was not as clean and as coiffured and as well kept. His nails were probably cracked and his hair were not capped. You know, this is not some person who has gone to a salon and you take a picture of this blonde, blue-eyed, nail-manicured Jesus. <laughs> no, this is not anything to do with Christ. And he dies on the cross. We say, died a miserable death, a stumbling block, and a foolishness, according to Paul. That begins and ends that story. What these people want is an investment in God. They don't understand. They make petitionary prayer. On the one hand, they said, till this time, that you can't have power. I have got five more minutes. Oh, ten. Oh, okay, good. Uh, so my point is that they are so loyal to their Christianity, they actually violate every central element of Christian faithfulness. You understand what I'm saying? Now, this is the problem that you get with that kind of reading of faith. And I, I am, I'm, I'm being hard only because I think we have been too soft for too long with them in our generosity. But they have not been very generous to us in that change. I mean, and I don't know if you know all of us who are facing in the mainline churches in America, some serious threats right now. I, I, I hope you know this. They challenge us, they, 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 they shout us down, and they don't allow us in the political arena because they think they must now control the very political arena they did not want to be a part of. They're 30 years late in the game, and they're now applying all the social issues that you and I were talking about, you know, in that corridor. They are now applying this, but they're not applying who the authorship of that is. They hated social gospel. They hated liberation theology. They hated political theology. They hated exegesis, which would allow us to relook. And now they've imposed upon us this successful criteria, which is to dislocate the crucified God, which we claim to be the center of our faith. And I find this absolutely unacceptable argument to hold that. And this is not about liberation. This is about being honest to the text. You tell me, and so this is where I am, they actually end up in a classical Abrahamic promissory theology and not a classical Christological promissory theology. So Abraham was promised three things, right? My Old Testament brother will help me. Age, progenies, like star and hair on your head and sand on the earth and land. He died at the age of 30, barely, Jesus died without any progenies then brown notwithstanding <laughs> i don't know if you know that book that he wrote about jesus having a child it's a it's a novel but now everybody takes that to be a text thank you now it's part of the care. but the last promise becomes even more problematic because that's a success criteria 
foxes have holes, the birds of air the nest, the son of man not even a stone to lay his head on. That's the text. How can you now treat this man to be the criteria of success, when the birds of have nests, but the son of man not even a stone to lay his head on, and who gets crucified, a miserable death, a stumbling block, who prays, and this is the that bothers me the most. They have always petitionary prayer. If you pray to God and ask Him for a Cadillac, you'll get Cadillac. They talk about American cars. They're not talking about European cars. That's too much internationalism. <laughs> you have to buy a Ford or a Cadillac because that's America. But Jesus prayed. Do you remember the prayer of Jesus? I mean, those, those of you who know the New Testament, I'm trying to assume that you all know some part of it. The text says, he went into the garden, knelt down and began to pray. And he told his disciples, pray with me on the other side. And they are all praying. And Jesus prays. And what is his prayer? Take this cup away from me. Your will be done, not mine. That is his prayer. He does not want to die. Jesus does not want to die. Did God listen to him? No. So you have to say with these people's theology, that Jesus was not a good man. God doesn't listen to his prayer. Right? <laughs> That's the logic of that theology. Well, God did not listen to him. He died. He died a miserable death where he even cries out, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, the only major text kept in Aramaic intact. The one of Tilita Kum and Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. Otherwise, there's no <coughs> Aramaic text. You want, the authors want to emphasize the misery of the death on the cross, that he cried, they left his language intact there. So how can this become the criteria for success theology? To me, it becomes a serious distortion of Christian faith. To me, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this with apologies, you can fight with me, you can, but I have to stand up and say this. If anything I learned from Luther, I think every Christian church, here I stand, I can do no other. So the ones who ate with Jesus, the one who put his bread in his soup bowl, is the one who betrayed him with the most intimate question, which is that I will go and kiss him, and he's the one you get. And therefore, betrayed by a kiss. I think that's what they, they claim to be eating with Jesus. But they are the ones who are betrayed. Thank you. <clears throat>